Welcome to the Olajide Oyewole LLP World Intellectual Property Day podcast series with myself, Sandra Oyewole, Intellectual Property and Technology Lead and Partner at Olajide Oyewole LLP. Olajide Oyewole LLP is a commercial law firm and a member of DLA Piper Africa, a Swiss foreign whose members are comprised of independent law firms in Africa working with global law firm DLA Piper. For today's podcast, we will be discussing the World Intellectual Property Day 2019 with the theme Intellectual Property and Sports Reach for Gold. Sports is a complex global business with tremendous opportunities and considerable threat. In looking at the connections between intellectual property and sports, a perfect opportunity has been created for us to discuss the legal and business aspects. I'm very lucky to be joined by specialists within Olajide Oiwole LLP to discuss these issues. I extend a warm welcome to Samuel Salako, Muiwa Ugumbenru, Abisodun Adewale, and Sholake Peters. Would you each like to introduce yourselves? Thank you, Sandra. My name is Samuel Salako. I'm one of the corporate partners in the firm. My name is Muiwa Ugumbenru. I'm a partner in dispute resolution practice, and I also double as head of tax. My name is Abisodun Adewale. I'm a senior associate with the firm and a practice lead in the intellectual property and technology practice group. My name is Sholakwe Peters, and I'm a partner in the Transport and Infrastructure Department of the Finance and Projects Practice Group, and a partner at Olajideweweli LLP. Thank you all. This ties in with broadcasting rights and what the Director General of the World Intellectual Property Organization had to say on World Intellectual Property Day earlier this year. I'm speaking specifically about Francis Guri and how he spoke about how today millions of people can watch sporting events in so many different ways. So since we're talking about the World Intellectual Property Day and broadcasting is one of the works of copyright, it's actually protected by copyright, I thought to start the discussion with yourself, Abisodun, who's one of our practice leads in the Intellectual Property and Technology Practice Group. Can you tell us a little bit about broadcasting and broadcasting rights? Thank you very much, Sandra. Broadcasting continues to be and will remain a very valuable source of revenue, not only for the organizers of sporting events, but also for the audience in terms of the coverage and the viewership that it guarantees. As you rightly noted, broadcasting is protected by a number of laws, including the Copyright Act, Broadcasting Code, as well as the different rules that regulate the sports, um, as well as the leagues that operate in these fields. I'll focus on broadcasting and the code. The code contains a number of protections and protective measures for broadcasting rights. The government has come to realize the importance of broadcasting rights to the development of the sporting industry and has taken steps to incorporate a number of protections for the owners of such rights. You would see from the recent edition of the Nigerian Broadcasting Code that was published recently by the Nigerian Broadcasting Commission that these protections help to or seek to protect both the industry as well as the owners of these rights. Firstly, bundling of broadcast rights are prohibited and what this means is that a broadcaster cannot acquire rights in respect of several platforms and also the rights for broadcasting in Nigeria cannot be bundled with rights for other countries. So if you were to acquire broadcasting rights for Nigeria, that would be separate, subject to a separate agreement from other territories. Also, if you were to acquire rights over a number of platforms for broadcasting a sporting event, particularly football, what the code requires of you is that you, reasonable terms, share 
or offer these rights to owners of other platforms different from you or different from the platform in which you operate. Not only does it ensure that there's a level playing field, it also guarantees the audience that they will be able to access the sporting event as and when they can and they wish to. In addition to that, the code also contains several fines and requirements of broadcasters who acquire these rights. For instance, a broadcaster is mandated to submit details of any broadcast rights they acquire for Nigeria within a specific period to the commission. If a broadcaster fails to do this, the punishment or penalties go as far as nullifying the rights that have been acquired and the events that the rights were acquired in respect of cannot be broadcast until the reporting requirements have been fulfilled. Um, you've spoken quite a bit on the recently published sixth edition of the Nigerian Broadcasting Code. Can I take you to the Copyright Act and can you just tell us the exclusive rights that are owned by the broadcasters? With respect to the exclusive rights, broadcasting is one of the copyright works that the Nigerian Copyright Act recognizes. Some of the exclusive rights that a broadcaster controls with respect to a broadcast includes the right to reproduce the broadcast. Reproduction here covers any form of reproduction, so it could be taking it apart and reproducing just the audio bits as opposed to the, the full recording. The Copyright Act also guarantees the exclusive right of a broadcaster to distribute copies of the broadcast to the public for commercial purposes. So be it a lease or be it a rental of the piece or, or the copy of broadcast, you are guaranteed exclusive rights in respect of that piece of work that you've created. It, it's, it's very complex and anybody who works in copyright understands that. And talking about broadcasting, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move over to Muiwa, who's recently concluded a fairly important case on broadcasting rights. Muiwa, still on broadcasting rights, can you talk to us a little bit about the issues that arose in this, as well as a little bit of focus on the value? Uh, as you may be aware, there are several cases relating to Nigerian Premier League. There were some line of cases relating to the existence of the Nigerian Premier League itself. There were other set of cases relating to the leadership of the Nigerian Premier League. Right. And then there was another set of cases relating to the broadcast rights of the uh, Nigerian Premier League matches. And that is where we were involved. In that case, Total Promotion took an action against um, Supersport at the Nigerian Premier League on the broadcast rights of the matches. We were representing Supersports who acquired the right from Total Promotion to broadcast Nigerian matches. Now, they got their rights from Nigeria Football Federation, who is no longer in existence or is not in charge of assigning the rights. League management company that came into being. So the issue was whether Total Promotion would still be able to guarantee to give the same right to Supersports and whether Supersports has a right to directly approach league management company to acquire the same right. So there was a case in Lagos and there was another one in London and we were involved in all of these cases. Eventually the cases were resolved in favor of Supersport, which allowed fund to be directed to where the money is really needed, which is league management company, where you get to use the fund to develop Nigerian football matches. We were. I know things like the award are probably confidential, but um, we're talking about the value of broadcasting rights. Are you able to talk a little bit on the value of broadcasting rights for the benefit of our listeners? Of course, I can't speak to the award itself, but I know that the worth of the, the, the broadcast rights itself is in the region of about $35 million. Right. Thank you very much. I think it continues along the themes of the value of broadcasting rights. And I'm going to bring the conversation over to Samuel. 
The challenges teams face when it comes to funding is a real issue. If we look at the recent case of our female basketball team, the Tigresses, raising funds for their participation in the Afro basketball tournament in Senegal was difficult. Fortunately, that was resolved and they were able to attend and went on to win the tournament and retain their title. Samuel, with all these issues, given your work in the space, can you speak to us about how teams can secure funding? Broadcasting is very valuable, obviously, and is one of the major revenue sources for sports. But quite honestly, a lot of um, clubs and a lot of sports do struggle for financing, especially before they get to the stage where they can be broadcast. You tend to look at it that are there ways that funds can be raised, mm. you know, different from before you get to the stage where you have these big ticket broadcasting rights payments. So you have to look at the traditional sources of funding for sports generally. What are these? You'll be looking at government. Government basically are the first recourse for funding. And government funding typically will come from grants, will come from subventions, or will come from other supports that governments do give. If you look at most you know, sports in the developing world, the government actually going to about 90% of the funding. But when you take out government from funding, then you need to be careful. You need to be able to put in other sources of funding in there. And here you have to look at partnerships. We have companies in Nigeria that do actually try to leverage on partnerships to get funding for sports. What are the sort of partnerships that you're looking at? There are two different types. Look at corporate partnership, then you look at individual partnership. In most successful climbs, what you find is that corporate partnership is actually the way to go. Let's take the example of a typical English team, for instance. You have um, corporate partnerships involved in acquisition of different type of rights. Yeah. In terms of the partnership as well, a key consideration there is branding. Then, of course, you have to look at another way of funding sports is also through crowdfunding. Then let's look at in terms of third-party funding that you may have. This applies both to leagues as well as to individuals. Typically, you have clubs who start mostly from a community-based project. And when I say community, that may also involve religious bodies as well. So they typically get their funding from the community or from the churches. But what tends to happen is over time, they start to grow out of this model because it is not sustainable. What would they be looking at to raise more money? Membership fees is part of the way to raise money. But what is critical for us is that we need to understand that broadcasting is one aspect of funding, which is very valuable. But before you get there, there are a whole range of funding sources that typical clubs or leagues can actually look at. It's really interesting. I mean, you have talked about a different range of funding from government to sponsorship. And I'm going to bring it back to the government because we're very fortunate to have Sholakwe here who's done a fair bit of work with regards to funding, infrastructural facilities, development projects, working with the government. So I'm going to just ask you to talk to us a little bit about PPP, what exactly PPP is all about, what it actually means, and its role in the sports industry to a certain extent. Before I start, I just want to make a general note that any sector where there's an investment, there's always a corresponding flow in job creation in the economy. And there are various ways that you can fund sporting events and sports clubs. And with PPPs, you're looking essentially at a collaboration between the public sector and private entities. And with this collaboration, it develops key infrastructure projects as well as services. If you really think about it, a PPP is a funding model where the government moves from its traditional role as the owner and operator of an asset to a purchaser of services. And with that, even if the government had an unlimited resource towards public spending, the government should focus on governance and leave the private sector, which 
typically have a drive for innovation in technology to improve the services and are looking for a return on investment to pioneer provision of services. So with PPPs, it's a great way to get funding in place to improve projects and improve service delivery. Now with PPPs, the typical characteristics or sort of the differences between traditional procurement methods is you usually will have a risk apportionment. Now in, in PPPs, when we say risk apportionment, you know, there's a myth that it just means a movement of risk from the government to the private sector, which is very much a myth. What you have is an apportionment. And usually with PPPs, you have the private sector taking on a significant amount of operational risk with the necessary support from the government. Another characteristic is you have skills transfer. Now, with skills transfer, the private sector have access to partnerships with international technical partners. Now, with that, if the private sector bring that expertise into an economy like ours, you then have the government being able to benefit from that skills transfer at the completion of the project. Then with these sorts of relationships, because of the longevity, you're looking at contracts in excess of 10 years. And then, you know, I mentioned technology. With the private sector, because the focus is on rate of return and return on their investment, they're always looking for innovative ways to improve the service delivery. So that means technology gets involved and technology would typically make it easier for you to complete a service. So where you'd have manpower, sort of 10 people deployed to do something, technology allows you to you know, streamline the process, get it done in a shorter time. It would be interesting to find out how this can be deployed within the sports industry, primarily because if you, if you just consider, for example, the stadiums in the UK, Wembley Stadium, for example, and you consider just the machinery around getting sporting events there and what it does for the economy, and you juxtapose that in the Nigerian space. If you look at a you know, national stadium in Lagos, which when it was built in the 1960s was only refurbished in the 1970s and then effect effectively abandoned in, in the early 2000s, and you think about the opportunity for growth in our economy, job creation, you know, one of the viable ways to do that is with PPPs, where the government and the private sector, you know, collaborates to improve, you know, how sporting events are uh, carried out. Thank you all very much. This has been a great discussion with Samuel Salako, Muiwa Gumbwemu, Abisodun Adewale, and Sholakwe Peters. It's been truly informative and insightful. Thank you also very much to our listeners. This is Sandra Iwale saying goodbye.